The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. And now, the man who takes the BS out of BS, Bill Spone. Welcome back to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. The goal of our podcast is to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians. We're going to try to help those two professions work together to better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. You can find other podcasts of the Blue Collar Roots Network at bluecollarroots.com. We're trying to do our part to help transform and professionalize the trades by filling in the skills gap through training and communication. Today's guest is Jay West from Chicago. Jay will be talking about his background, his approach to the way he does his work, some of his life experiences and how they've shaped what he does for the CETA, the Chicago Economic Development Authority, and the work he does with weatherization and building performance, especially with regard to training aspects. So I hope you enjoy the interview, and here's Jay West. Today, we're really pleased to have Jay West join us. We're going to learn a lot about Jay, his background, his philosophy, his approach, and how he does what he does in the world of building performance. Welcome, Jay. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Jay, tell us a little bit about what you do now. What are you up to right now? So right now, I'm like a lot of people. I do several things, but my main thing, my priority is I'm the training manager at CETA Weatherization. So CETA Weatherization is the biggest weatherization company in the country. We serve all of Cook County, and Cook County contains Chicago. So we not only service the third largest country and the richest country in the world, but we also serve 34 municipalities around that city. But in conjunction with that, I also have a consulting business. So I had kind of a funny trip here, and funny meaning like weird, not as in humorous. Not ha-ha funny, okay. Well, sometimes you're ha-ha funny just because of who you are, I guess. That's right. That's why I want to predicate this part of my story so people didn't get that confused when I start really tearing it up, yucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> See? I got my start in weatherization in the home performance building science field. And then I left for the last four or five years and I've been a consultant. So uh, I've come back. I uh, really like what's going on at this company at CETA Weatherization. I like the people that are involved. I love the fact that the state management and the CAP agency, the weatherization agency that I work for, are both committed to being the absolute best. They want to be the best ever. And that's probably the main reason why I wanted to come back and join them. I mean, I've always felt like I could do a lot of good for the environment, for people, for houses, and for myself and my family being in this field. But right now, I feel like the dedication that's at CETA and in the state of Illinois to be the best is and to be innovative and to really to strive is something that I'm really interested in. So I'm back. Got you charged up. Yeah, I'm fired up. That and this coffee that I'm drinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever tried this mushroom-based coffee? No. I heard about it on another podcast, Tim Ferriss. And uh, anyway, so I've been trying. It's pretty incredible stuff. So it's basically, I think, some kind of freeze-dried mushrooms mixed with uh, a little bit of freeze-dried coffee. It's instant. It tastes like coffee, but it wakes you up in more of a cerebral way. So as the kids like to say, I'm a bit woke. It tickles your brain, I guess. That's what I'm getting here, that kind of vibe. Yeah, it tickles your brain without hurting your stomach. <laughs> Great. 
So CEDA, what does it stand for? Community Economic Development Association. Okay. And for our listeners out there who might not be familiar, tell us what an economic development association does and then the division that you work in that sort of touches the building performance HVAC industry. So CETA is a community action group. So that's why when I say CAP, that's what it stands for. One of the things that community action is very good for is acronyms. In fact, that's why we're CETA and we're a CAP and I work for IWAP. (laughs) And I oftentimes don't actually have any idea what those acronyms mean, but I just know what I do. You sling them around like a real gunslinger there. A lot of times I just like saying stuff that makes me look smart. Sometimes it works too. Probably not with this crowd. So what we do is we basically service low-income folks and we work to make their existing housing, the housing stock that they live in, more energy efficient, more safe and safe, meaning almost entirely from the indoor air quality basis and the idea then of being ostensibly that we're helping the environment, that we're helping create a uh, energy or a, um, an energy independence for the United States. But overall, as the CAP agency, our goal is to help people and to change their lives so that they can be independent, so that they're not reliant on different types of programs to eat or keep their house over their head, which is what we do. So in the process of lowering their energy bills and minding the safety aspect that's you're affecting the health and lowering the energy bills allows them to spend money on other things rather than just paying for the fuel, basically. Right. And that is the goal of weatherization. So the word weatherization is often thought of as consistent with the idea of, for most folks, of just regular uh, retrofit or energy-based retrofit. And retrofit, of course, being making an existing house or building more energy efficient. But for us, when we think of weatherization, we think specifically of the Department of Energy program weatherization, which is, again, what I just explained. Changing people's lives, really, impacting them. There must be some stories, some specific situations without getting personal, just tell us some things, some transformations you've seen happen. You know, it's funny. Oftentimes I think about a lot of the hardship and the strife that we went through as an organization to provide and deliver over a lot of oversight. We're expected to do a lot, but also have to live up to a lot of oversight. So I don't think enough about some of the people that we've helped, but I don't know if I have any stories off the top of my head that are sort of inspiring, but I've seen some absolutely terrible living situations. In fact, I should go back to being in CETA. So during the RA years, which was the American reinvestment, and I don't know what the other R. I think it was recovery. Yeah, recovery. And then what's the other A? Act. Ah, good call. I just want to say association every time I hear an A at the end. (laughs) All I know is we had to scale up massively. So in a two-year period... The little organization that I work for, we did 22,000 retrofits. Now, to be honest, I think a majority of those were uh, multifamily units. But of course, as you know, multifamily can be anything from, I think, more than five units up to several hundred units for us. So, But the point is that we did 22,000. So I was out in the field. My organization did about 400 energy audits a week from completion. And we oversaw, we're not a crew-based agency. We use private contractors. So I think at one time we had about 137 private contractor crews. So I saw a huge amount of things. I was in some really, really bad neighborhoods and I saw some really, really bad stuff. And I think the thing that I was most inspired by was to see the houses that we would go to in the worst neighborhoods would tend to be the best families. They tended to be the people that really had to strive, really had to work, couldn't make any mistakes because they didn't have the money and they didn't have the chance to make in the neighborhoods that they lived in. 
saw lots of very old people, obviously with the vast majority of people that we serve, because we mostly serve people who own their homes. And many who had purchased homes in the 70s had their homes were paid off and their spouse had died. They were on a set or a fixed income that hadn't changed in 30 or 40 years and they were trying to make ends meet. And I saw people trying to deal with crime, with a lack of food. It wasn't uncommon to see people who didn't have a cat, but sure had a lot of cat food in the house. So those were the things that kind of, I guess, in a weird sort of negative way inspired me because I knew that there was a lot of people who I would never have interacted with and that a lot of the American public throughout the world would think maybe were just looking for a handout or just thought it was easier just to get by because they didn't have to work. But I didn't see that. What I saw were people that had worked all their lives and just couldn't, uh, were trying to age in place, were trying just to live. There's my inspirational story. It's very sweeping, very inspirational. Like you said, there's that cushion of money that sometimes allows us to make mistakes in our lives. And if it's not there, then the mistakes can be very punishing in and of themselves. Right. And if you forget to lock your door at night, somebody's coming in. When did we meet? We met probably on the order 10 years ago, maybe eight to 10 years ago. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I don't know myself. This isn't a Q&A. I'm not going to buzz you out or anything like that. <laughs> One of the things I always remember about you is you're very people focused. And that little story you just told there was very people focused. And I know you do a lot of training and that you pay attention to the way you train. I'm not sure if you're professionally trained to be a trainer, but for a time there, you were forwarding me articles from Psychology Today and talking about sort of like the psychology of learning. So tell me a little bit about that kind of background. What's going on there? Thanks for asking. That's a good point. The thing that I'm probably the most passionate about, and again, overall, we talked about the reasons why I do it, the reasons why I like to be in this field. But for me, my other, my passion, my personal love is of how the human brain works. So I graduated from uh, Illinois State University. For those of you who don't know, that's considered to be the absolute Ivy League of the Midwest. In fact, I've heard that many Ivy League colleges want to sue Illinois State for being better than them. And that's not our fault. We're just super smart. That is sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to let it drip there for a while. And it's cold enough that it's really viscous and it's slowly dripping. Okay. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I graduated in 95. At Illinois State, you were able to get what was called a sequence. And I had two sequences, which are basically specializations inside of a college. So from the College of Sociology, I had two sequences, which basically amount to majors. I had, of course, the core sociology courses that I had to take, but then I took two separate sequences. One was in human sexuality, and the other one was in social psychology. And then I ended up with two minors in psych and philosophy. Overall, I really, really love to learn. I love learning. I think I'm fascinated by, I mean, I enjoy the act of learning. I think that the more that you are learning, the more that you are changing, the more you're staying young. It's almost a mental autophagy. It's like you're kind of shedding your old skin and getting newer. But I was also became fascinated, as you alluded to, with cognitive psychology. And that is basically how people learn. And it's funny because it wasn't just learning in school. It was about being an athlete and growing up playing sports and being a very undersized athlete. I played football all my life and wrestling, and I played rugby for many years through college and after college. And 
it was always fascinating to me to see how you can learn new skills and the coaching techniques and sort of scheduling things, putting together some of the most mundane things about even breaking things into steps and learning how to build upon skills and sort of, like I said, scaffold skills and knowledge and break down that stuff. And it was funny because the more that I learned about that in an academic setting, the more I was made aware of what I guess I had been doing for a long time or what I had been a part of. And it, and it just really, really fascinated me. And, and I guess when you get right down to it, the definition of learning is, well, there's a lot of different people that have different definitions. But the one that I like is just basically being able to do something that you could not do before. That's you've now learned something. And I think that's something that interests me to no end. Absolutely. It comes out, you exude it. That's interesting because the reason I'm doing podcasting is I wanted to learn something new. I'd figured out it'd been a long time since I'd learned something new. And I thought this is going to be the challenge. This is going to be the mental exercise that's going to cause me to stay mentally awake and mentally young. And maybe if I get a hold of some of that uh, mushroom coffee, it'll go even further. Yeah. Might make a couple extra hairs sprout out of your head. (laughs) (laughs) I could use that. Absolutely. The title of this episode is from heavy metal to house rap. You know why I said that. Can you explain to the listeners why I title it that way? Another aspect of my entire life has always been trying to balance my love of art and my love of athletics. So the art part, when I was young, I used to draw quite a bit. I was big in uh, visual arts, but I always have loved music. I was raised by very young parents. There was always music around. My dad was in a band, so I just always have had an absolute love of music. And it wasn't until I got older, in fact, before I got into college that I really decided that I wanted to play music. So I started playing music. I was in a series of bands that didn't turn out very good music, but I was always dedicated first and foremost to athletics, as I mentioned. As my athletic career sort of wound down, I got more and more dedicated to music. I was in a series of bands, and I really, really more and more was attracted to metal. The tones, the dynamics, I I love all kinds of music, but for me, being that I'm not uh, naturally talented musically at all, I felt like I could work harder to be good at metal and I wanted to make metal and I loved, felt energized by it. So yeah, I was in a metal band for a long time. I was in a touring metal band or what we call a working band. So the idea of a working band is, yeah, that we basically run as a small business. We toured for about six years. It was called Imperial Battlesnake. Battlesnake's one word. Yeah, that's right. Look it up. <laughs> Look it up, man. Look it up on myspace.com. <laughs> yeah, we made three or four albums. And we toured a lot. I also toured with a band called uh, Bible of the Devil, who were not a, a satanic band. It was actually a political reference, a reference to a Southern, a longtime politician who described rock and roll as the Bible of the Devil. So I was on tour with those guys. I've toured Europe, toured all over the entire United States many, many, many times. I think I made five full-length albums, three with Imperial Battlesnake. We did a split 12-inch album with another band, and we did a five-song EP, which was essentially kind of broke down to a demo. And now I rap, and then, of course, rapping, which you spelled correctly, with a W. Now I work in a field where we fix houses and oftentimes use house rap. Excellent. So how is the experience, maybe the international aspect of your travels with the bands impacted what you do today? Is there anything that shapes you, that changes the way you approach things? Yeah, I would say from a general perspective, there's probably one main thing, and uh, hopefully it might surprise you. And it often surprises me when I really, really think about it. But the fact that 
no matter where we were, especially being on tour, but even if you're not on tour, even if you're just playing shows or trying to make albums or trying to get people together for band practice, you have to be creative in a way or inventive. You have to be able to work with what you have. You should kind of show up at a place and everything is something is always going to be wrong. So there's always something wrong. Sometimes something is really wrong. And uh, so when working in existing housing stock, especially now, not that new housing stock doesn't have its issues, but really when you're working in, when you're trying to retrofit a building, the tenants are always going to be different. The house is always going to be different. The environment is always going to be different. The only thing that you can count on is that you're going to show up. You're going to think you know what you're getting into. You're going to be some degree of wrong. And then you're going to have to somehow figure out, kind of be inventive and figure out how to deal with what you got. So do you call uh, energy audits and retrofits gigs now? <laughs> yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you're just so honest. <laughs> yeah, never even thought of that. Seriously, what is an energy audit? Take us through kind of the steps and maybe give me a little perspective or give our listeners a little perspective of how things maybe used to be when you started and how they've changed now. Are there any changes you've noticed? Your first question is to define energy audit. And I would define it as a misnomer or a, what's the terminology for a bad nomer? <laughs> a miscreant nomer? Yeah, exactly. It's a malnomer. It's not always about energy. It's usually about a lot of things that an energy is included. The word audit, it sounds terrible. I don't know anybody who wants to be audited. I've never, and there's been a lot of uh, discussion in the past about changing the name. And we always kind of came back to the same one because obviously if you get too bogged down in semantics, it really kind of, it's meaningless, but makes for a good podcast, I suppose. I hope what's changed. I mean, it's so dependent. And that's the other thing that now we're talking about. It's such a broad generalization. An energy audit for someone who say is a ResNet folks who are doing a very in-depth sort of a universal look at a new building who oftentimes will do several visits and then bring those all into an overall rating. And they use a specific type of software to make that rating as opposed to maybe a guy who's working for HVAC company that wants to do a little bit of shell work and who just basically does a visual walkthrough and makes some prescriptions. I mean, there's a, such a wide variety. In the government or in the public sector, we've seen it go from just absolutely specifically for energy. And depending on where you're at in the country, you may be more focused on electricity or where I'm at, we're definitely more focused on natural gas. I'm sure there's other places where you're, where, you know, maybe the Northeast where they're also focused on oil or fuel oil. But now, as I mentioned before, we're getting closer and closer, more focused on, I think, the healthy aspect. At least I think for, again, weatherization, like I mentioned earlier, when I say the word weatherization, I'm thinking about the national, the low income program. I've got a feeling that in the next, say, five to 10 years, we're going to go from a energy first and health second program to health first and energy second, because I think it's a lot of the same measures, a lot of the same stuff, but I think it's easier to prove and it's easier to explain, and it's probably more impactful. I'm with you on that. As you know, we both are members of the board of directors of the Healthy Home Environments Association. You're on that? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I'm a secretary, man. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah. Those guys are cool. Yeah. I had Steve Baden on from ResNet and Larry Zarker on from BPI, and they both talked about the health aspect. So I think it has been discovered and it will tie in here as, as we move forward in the future. Another aspect of things you do, maybe this is when you were a consultant. Tell us a couple of things about what you did as a consultant, some of the projects you worked on, 
people you worked with. Just give us a little overview of that. Yeah, that's a good point. I suppose I could probably be good for people who are trying to build podcasts because I can start talking and forget and just get way <laughs> off. <laughs> but your original question was what I do, and I never got to the fact that I still am a consultant. So, and that's okay. It's known. It's I mentioned earlier that my primary and main focus, but my 40 hours to 50 hours a week are spent on being the training manager for CETA. But I'm also still the owner of a consulting company called High Performance Human Habitats training and consulting. So we do training and consulting. I thought that it was apropos. Obviously, I think we touched on a little bit about how I am with misnomers and I thought <laughs> the name of my company should be a good nomer. I like to work with manufacturers and that's what I like to focus on. And what I like to do is I like to help them build training and certification from within. And I've kind of fallen into the e-learning field, not because it was my main area of interest, but just because it is the most functional cost-effective way to build an in-house certification. I was on retainer, which is basically a contract that didn't have a specific end, a uh, month-to-month contract for uh, Retrotech, the blower door company, for four years. So what I mostly did for them was go to trade shows, keep an eye on their booth, explain to people what they did there, do outreach to training folks, and then I built their online training and continue actually to work on their online training. We're redoing all of their online training. They've bought a new learning management system, and so I'm working with them to build content for that that's sound from a learning and instructional systems design perspective, and then also just hot-looking and uh, exciting from a metal perspective. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Rock and roll! It's right. We got to get a little bit of that on here. I mean, you got a good quality headset, it appears, and you can belt out a couple. All right. (laughs) You've done some work with Habitat X. Tell me your perspective on Habitat X and why you got involved and work with them and who it is. You know, describe it. I never answered the question. I might be good at politics as well. You know, you asked me a question. I never (laughs) even came close to answering you when we met. I think we met in 2009 in Baltimore which was the same time that I was doing an all-day training workshop with Chris Dorsey. Chris Dorsey is the CEO, president, director. Doesn't have a title. Yeah, he's Habitat X. And he had just left his previous place, uh, Saturn Resources, and he had this idea that he wasn't exactly sure how it wanted to manifest, but he asked me to get involved. And that was in 2009. And at first, we kind of had this idea of this sort of train the trainer, technical building science, maybe not so much building science as much as building performance perspective. And we kind of started with that. And now what it is, is it's become a mind sink, a a brain trust, a yearly meeting where we get together with some of the folks that you talked to, with you, with Steve Baden, with Larry Zarker, with some really wise, smart folks some younger, some older. We have this sort of conference layout where everybody that's in the conference also provides that content. So everybody's a presenter and part of the conversation. And people, I think, generally enjoy it. I've never heard a negative review of it. And we've had a lot of great stuff come out of it. So that's kind of what Habitat X is, I guess. Cool. Here's what I want to talk about, Bill. (laughs) I want to talk about the future. Start pounding your fist. That's right. So the other reason that I really had to go back to CETA, that I really, really needed to get back in there was because we're opening up, uh, we're opening up a training center. So the training center is in conjunction, it is funded by the Illinois Weatherization. So we are in collaboration with our training center in Champaign that's run by Paul Francisco. 
Speaking of indoor air quality, I think that's probably his seat on the ASHRAE 622 committee probably makes him the most famous ASHRAE dude in Illinois for sure. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to be mad or happy about that. <laughs> and he does a lot of other cool stuff too. But we're opening up a new training center because they're in Champaign. So those of you who don't know, Illinois is a pretty long state. I mean, at one end of the state, you've got Wisconsin and at the other end of the state, you got Kentucky. So I think that tells you enough about how different it is from one end to another. We're opening up sort of a regional satellite office. And your title here, at least the things that I'm interested in, heavy metal and building performance and wrapping houses, this is a perfect sort of culmination of those two big general interests for me because Right now, we have a huge need for tradesmen, for people in the trades. There is so much construction going on. An example of how I know this, I was doing some training for the regional carpenters union in the southwestern part of the country. I was actually in California. It's the most beautiful training center you've ever seen. It's amazing. So I'm training these folks and I was training them on blower doors and duct testers. And I was doing a train the trainer thing where you're teaching people how to teach this stuff. It was a three-day class. You always want to start with explaining to people why it's important to them. You want to make sure- The why. Exactly. And somehow figuring out who your audience is and figuring out, in this sense, um, helping them to understand that they also need to figure out the why. So I'm going through a list of reasons why professional carpenters in the carpenter union should care about this sort of energy efficiency stuff. And I'm mentioning to them, you know, especially you guys in Southern California, I'm also a passive house tradesman and how if you're building a passive house, it costs a lot more money. I shouldn't say a lot more money, but the people right now that are building passive houses are looking for bigger, more beautiful houses. And you can't just have an, your average person, your average guy off the street that standing in line at the Home Depot, you can't have them come work on that work site. You need skilled, professional guys, carpenters. So of three days of instruction, later on, I get a call back from these guys. Hey, can you come back and do a whole week on that one paragraph you said about the opportunities? My point is, I guess, that just goes to show you how much they know that there is a need for skilled labor. And of course, now I'm making a kind of a big jump here. I'm going from A to B here because I'm going from energy efficiency, which people think is completely different than, than just building an average house. But I'm already making the jump where I just don't even see the difference. Anything that you're building or anything that you're renovating, it should just be a matter of fact that when we put in this wall, we're going to redo the insulation and the air ceiling. I don't think of them as separate things. It's the incorporation of details, appreciating the details, the long-term effects and impacts on energy, but also health and comfort, which I think from like the HVAC circle, I'm hearing that more people are focusing more and more on delivering comfort, solving issues, solving problems, sort of the Corbett Lunsford approach. I can prove to you that I've solved the problem that you have. I'm not here to save you money. I'm here to solve your problems. Right, exactly. And from a tradesman perspective, it's again, the idea that the tradesman, the difference from a laborer and a tradesman, or, and excuse me, I don't want to offend anybody because I know that some of these, there's a laborer's union and their tradesmen as well. But maybe I just mean the difference between in mentally of people's general image of just a guy that goes out and works on a construction site versus a tradesman is that the tradesman has training, has pride, knows, takes into consideration. Those details are not to him are what makes him different from your average person, from your average guy, like I said, at the Home Depot. This guy knows whatever he does is the highest quality and whatever details are necessary to make it the highest quality, well, then that's going to be involved as a matter of fact, not as an additional, it's not an add-on. It is part and parcel. Do you know anyone who's 
taken that journey? Yeah. Or in general, maybe? Well, I've seen it. This was a big thing for me. What I really took from what I've learned and being in this passive house, taking this hands-on passive house course, I took it in New York City with uh, AEA. I saw all these videos of these German tradesmen, right? These passive house guys who looked like they took great pride in what they were doing. The clothes that they wore were customized so that they could work at their highest performance. They had customized tools and they were using beautiful, expensive uh, equipment and materials. And oftentimes in some of the videos, they were explaining how they did what they did. And two things were evident. One, that they took great pride in it. And two, that they knew that they had a whole lot of knowledge about what they were doing because they're building these incredible enclosures and buildings that are testing out at 0.06 ACH, which is basically the difference between an analogy between a regular house, like an IECC house that is built to the IECC code, as opposed to a passive house, is like the difference between an alligator and Godzilla. (laughs) People think, wow, that alligator's mean. Yeah, check out this Godzilla. The alligator bite your legs off, but Godzilla crush your whole country. So for people who might not know, the listeners out here, the 0.06 air changes per hour, that would be 6% of the air is changing or moving through the house structure in the course of an hour, of the total air in the house. When the house is pressurized. When it's pressurized, okay. That's not a natural. So the house has been pressurized to 50 pascals or a quarter of an inch of water column. So that is, it's amazing. So anyway, I guess the point is that I'm in this class, I'm looking at all the science and the actual physical craftsmanship that you need to have to build these houses. And then at the same time, I'm dealing with people who are actually builders and that are complaining to me all the time about how they can't find people to show up on time. Not everybody. But they constantly run into people on job sites with drugs and alcohol problem. And basically, to my perspective, it seems like in a lot of ways, we have always focused on people have to kids. If you don't get a college education, you're worthless. You got to get a college education. You got to work at a desk. Your life has to revolve around showing up with a suit and tie and working all day in a cubicle. And that's what you have to do. But what we're seeing now, the reality of it is you don't have to do that. The reality of it is, in fact, that college debt is insane. People are dying or being crushed by college debt. I thought we spent a lot. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an English degree. And if you just think about it mathematically, not that we don't need, we definitely need college educations. We definitely need, I mean, I've got it. I love it. I love learning and I think that we need these things, but not everybody has to do that. And in fact, not everybody's going to lead a happy, productive life just showing up every day, putting on a suit. I'm interested in this training center, not just for the nuts and bolts and the day-to-day of creating training, of delivering training, of having this facility where we can tinker around with stuff and build stuff. But I'm also interested in hitting this market, this need for that we are building. You're seeing residential buildings. You're seeing both single detached and multifamily going up at a high rate. We're seeing so many skyscrapers and commercial buildings being built. I'm going to completely mutilate a statistic that I read last summer that I can't remember what source it was or even how close I am to being right. But I think the last year, or like in 2015, just in New York City alone, transactions of uh, large multifamily buildings and commercial buildings, there was something like $5 trillion in transactions. And if anybody's out there in New York City, recently you drive through and you just see nothing but huge buildings being built. Again, my point is that there's lots of stuff being built. 
there is a huge need, even though the job market, there's a lot of jobs out there, but there are tradesman jobs. There is an absolute dearth. There's a need to, there's a need for these guys. And these guys can come out, they can get trained up, they can learn how to do things right. And of course, right means not just how to swing a hammer or to run large machinery, but the reason why you're doing it so that it's both sound, beautiful, and energy efficient and healthy. Yeah, going back to the why. Exactly. So I'm wrapping, I'm already taking that, I'm already assuming that that's wrapped into it. And then you can have no debt. You can get some fantastic training, a lot of on-the-job skills. By the time your friends get out of college, you're making six figures and you've got insurance and you've got a job that you go to. And these guys are coming out with huge amounts of debt. And again, I'm not saying that comparatively that you have to do one or the other, but again, there's lots of people who would be a lot more happy if they took a different path than the one that they're being steered down. Are there any resources you could provide somewhere somebody can go if they're interested in what you're talking about? The Mike Rowe Foundation has some great resources for that. It's fairly simple to find any tradesman group and to get in contact with them to find out more information about it. And that's something that we're doing right now with our training center is that we want to make sure that we are not only working, obviously, with BPI and with ResNet, with the Passive House folks and with the Department of Energy, you know, weatherization folks, but we want to be working with Mike Rowe. In fact, we've reached out to him and we're hoping that we can have a relationship with him because we feel like we have a pretty solid marketing part. So there's one more element that I wanted. So I talked about the wrapping houses part, but we're about the heavy metal part. All right. Yeah. I really think we want to present this not just as a smart decision for folks, not everybody, but some folks, because of, like I said, there's a need, there's a market for this labor and that it's a good decision economically, but also that it's cool. That's the part that it finally made me think. I want to, you know, I have tattoos and you can't see it. Really? <laughs> I mean, you can't hear it. No, <laughs> but you can see them. I'm a metal dude and I'm really looking forward to seeing a groups of faces of people who are sort of thinking, well, I feel like I have to do one thing and being like, no, oh, man, that's not cool, dude. Don't listen to what your parents and what them old fogies are telling you, dude. Rock and roll. You can come work with us. Get up in the morning, put on your blue jeans, listen to some metal, <laughs> rock some hammers, man. And then afterwards, maybe grab a beer or whatever. But just it's cool, dude. It's cool to work in the trades. That's right. It's metal. Use your brain, use your body. Yeah. Yeah. So take me back to the concepts of Passive House, since you focused in on that a lot. Some of the basic concepts for someone who's not familiar. And I by no means am an expert, but I can tell you that generally what makes a Passive House, you have to fulfill certain specific diagnostics or specifications. Generally, they're extremely tight and tight, meaning that they don't have a whole lot of leakage. And I explained to you that there is a standard 0 0.06 ear changes per hour at 50 pascals pressure. So that is a specific standard. There's also a specific standard that you have to run um, super insulation. So walls and ceilings are R60. I think there are factions or different passive house standards that vary a little bit in this. But generally, to give you an idea, your walls are going to be or your ceilings are going to be R60, your walls are probably somewhere between R30 and R60, and, your, and so is your floors. So they're super insulated, and not just super insulated, but they have to be completely thermally broken. So that means that you can't have elements or physical parts of the construction that are transferring heat from inside to outside. So give me a real simple example of that so the listeners can visualize that. What's a horrible thermal bridge? Probably the worst one is the framing, the wall framing. 
probably the worst one that's easiest for people to get their head around is so the stick built wooden house, right? And you've got your two by four basic wall and you stuff your insulation between there because you're a tradesman and it's just the way to do it. It's the way to do it right. And that's the way you do it. And you got that insulation in there perfectly, but the outside sheathing is attached to the one side of the frame. And then the inside sheathing or finish is on the other side. So that insulation in between the walls is R13, but the actual wooden studs are maybe two. So what's going to happen now is that heat is literally transmitted from the inside or the outside, depending on the weather conditions. Yeah, Exactly. The Delta T, the heating climate, but it's literally going to be uh, transmitted via conduction, which is one of the basic forms of heat transfer to a tune of, I think the estimates are 16 to 18% of your R value can be derated for that wall, 16 to 18% because of those studs. And that causes all kinds of problems. Those are the kind of things like if you use a nice resolution thermal imager, you can actually see like the bones of the wall coming through because you're seeing that conduction that's radiating on the surface. Absolutely. And if you're inside and it's hot outside, then you'll see that the framing is a lot warmer. I seem to recall, I think it was last year, you were chatting and you were doing some work in New York City with uh, Kevin. Was that correct? Do you want to tell that story? I was really interested. So the Cornell Tech Building, Cornell University, which is actually back to the theme of Ivy League schools. Ivy League. Absolutely. Your competitor. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call them competition. They're just jealous. <laughs> this is a real Ivy League school and they're building a tech building. And so I think 26 stories and it is about to become the largest passive house building in the world. So they have classrooms, dormitories, everything inside of it. Dormitories are basically kind of small apartment units. So there's a construction company that's building it. And the construction company obviously has several small subs and installers. But in order to make sure that they meet passive house standards, they've hired a consultant to do all the testing. So because this construction company is smart, what they've done is they're not just going to wait for this final quality control check to see if the millions and millions of dollars that they invested or been paid to, yeah, to reach this. So they hired a consultant. So Kevin Brennan, a New York City fireman and an all around righteous dude. He is also a, my passive house guru and he's working as a quality control and training consultant for the contractor to do ongoing daily testing of sort of a qualitative testing of their air barrier and their air sealing activities, and then explaining to the guys in the field how to fix what they've done and how to avoid it in the future. So he's a quality control and training consultant for a a large contractor out there. Where is that being built? It is on, forgive me guys if I get this wrong, I believe it's called Roosevelt Island, which is an island that is between Manhattan and Staten Island, I believe. So it's a small island and there's basically nothing there for years and they've begun to develop it over the last 10 years, which is also really, really cool. Nice. Can you give me some more tie-ins between what our HVAC audience listeners should gather from your experience? What message do you want to convey to them? Well, first of all, that there is, especially for HVAC folks, the attention to detail and the commitment to quality, it pays off. Whether you're putting something into a new building or whether you're servicing an existing piece of equipment that you've installed, most people in general Whenever there is a shell problem or a lack of insulation, they're usually pointing their fingers first at the HVAC folks because they still equate in their mind all comfort with HVAC. And that's the first thing I want to point out. 
not only is it a business opportunity as far as more things that you can do to increase the amount of services that you provide for fee, but it's also a good idea for just to protect yourselves so that you're not constantly being forced to take the fall for problems that aren't yours. But then the second thing is that, and again, I want to point out this whole aspect of the health and safety or the indoor air quality. So just air sealing a building, say you're just air sealing an attic, right? That is going to save on energy, right? But it's also going to make that house more healthy. It makes the indoor air quality more healthy because you just not that connection between parts of the house that are nasty and parts of the house that aren't nasty. But now you need to have better ventilation and that's where the V comes in. Most of the HVAC folks, I don't know how much V they do. So I would say it's just my estimate that yeah, mostly they're doing heating and air conditioning, not as much ventilation, but now you need that ventilation. So if you can combine, you can really fairly easily institute some of these solutions, both from a shell perspective and a mechanical perspective that not only are good for people and good for your business, but makes you more of an authority and makes you uh, more valuable. And it definitely differentiates you from the other people that are out there. From the competition, yeah, as a problem solver. Yep. People are just switching out boxes there. But yeah, be a problem solver, be a tradesman, hire tradesmen. Can you give me some resources or even some contact info if someone wants to get a hold of you afterwards? My email address is jwest, just J like the letter, west like the direction, at hph2tc.com. That stands for uh, High Performance Human Habitats Training and Consulting. I like think it's easy to remember. I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> So very easy to get in contact with. If you're interested in, uh, if you have some ideas about some of the things that we're working on with the training center and bringing both energy together with tradesmen and then making the trades cool again or any kind of training, please let me know. You can also contact me at my work email, which is again, J West, J like the letter, West like the direction at cedanet.org. So C-E-D-A-N-E-T dot org. Definitely would love to hear your ideas and work with you on that. And then HabitatX.com for the HabitatX conference. Highly recommend it. It's really not intended just anybody. If you're not really interested in making buildings better in the bigger picture, if you're, you're not going to get enough out of this. So it's really for folks who are really involved. Yeah. If you want to get engaged, that's the place to go. Extremely engaged. Yeah. So going back to the CETA training center, who has access to that? Or is there any place to see how progress is being made there? No, we don't want anybody checking on our progress. Nope. See, I'm going to get in trouble. Now you're going to get me fired for that. <laughs> <laughs> we really are in the early stages. In fact, we haven't found a facility yet. So we're working on the facility. Again, if there's folks out there that have an idea, it would be awesome if, especially the, like the electrical union, not that I prefer them to anybody, but one of the things that we're doing a lot of in Illinois, which is brand new solar. So we're doing a lot of solar work in Illinois. In fact, the right by my house on the western part of Chicago, there is a IBEW, which is a Electrical Workers Union. They tore down their already giant building and they're building an even bigger building so that they can devote more space to solar. So there's uh, a lot of solar investment and would love to eventually work with all the trades and uh, solar as well. Okay. So as we wrap up here, a typical thing I do is I either ask my guest for their favorite quote or an interesting fact about themselves. Can I do both? And then you can just decide which one you like better. Sure. Interesting fact about myself. I got shot in the back when I was 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of wow. people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, I was actually physically shot when I was 13 years old in the back. 
We don't have enough time to explain that. Email me if you want me to tell you the story. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, probably my favorite quote, the first one that comes to the top of my head is that a army of donkeys led by a lion will defeat an army of lions led by a donkey. Wow. That's a very powerful one there. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Cool. Thanks for coming on, Jay. And we'll see you again probably at AHR Expo in Chicago. You're going to be hanging around there, running to you there? Yeah, we're looking for. In fact, we're having a gathering for that, right? Should we mention that? Yeah, absolutely. And Jay's helping me coordinate because he's, of course, in Chicago, and that's where the HR Expo is going to be there at the end of January. So I'll look on social media for that. I'm cool. And he's really cool. He's the coolest guy I know, man. That's why he's on the show. I'm cool because I'm in the trades. The trades are cool. So we're going to have a really cool place in Chicago to meet and do some cool stuff, talk about metal. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And Jay, thank you for coming on. Rock and roll. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. It was fun. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay West, where he covered sort of his career and background from heavy metal to house rap. Hopefully you got that pun there. If you didn't, you can send me an email and let me know about it. In fact, if you want to email me, you can reach me at Bill underscore Spohn, S-P-O-H-N, at bluecollarroots.com. If you're interested in discussing anything you heard today, or you have an idea for a future podcast, or if you wish to become a sponsor, you can contact me at Bill underscore Spohn, S-P-O-H-N, at bluecollarroots.com. I want to thank you for listening today. And I want to close, as usual, with a quote. I think this one's a really cool one. How you do anything is how you do everything. Ponder on that one, folks. That's a Buddhist expression. Take care and look forward to having you back on the next episode of the Building HVACC. <laughs> we'll leave that one in the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I can't even pronounce it myself. Take care, everybody. Bye.